Chapter Six of Little Fuzzy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Little Fuzzy by H. Beam Piper. Chapter Six. The recorded voice ceased. For a moment, the record player hummed voicelessly. Loud in the silence, a photocell acted with a double click, opening one segment of the sun shielding and closing another at the opposite side of the dome. Space Commodore Alex Napier glanced up from his desk, and out at the harshly angular landscape of Xerxes in the blackness of airless space, beyond the disquietingly close horizon. Then he picked up his pipe and knocked the heel out into the ashtray. Nobody said anything. He began packing tobacco into the bowl. "'Well, gentlemen,' he invited comment. "'Pancho?' Captain Conrad Greibenfeld, the exec, turned to Lieutenant Wybera, the chief psychologist. "'How reliable is this stuff?' Wybera asked. "'Well, I knew Jack Holloway thirty years ago on Fenris, when I was just an ensign. He must be past seventy now,' he parenthesized. "'If he says he saw anything, I'll believe it. And Bennett Rainsford's absolutely reliable, of course.' "'How about the agent?' Wybera insisted. He and Stephen Alborg, the intelligence officer, exchanged glances. He nodded, and Alborg said, "'One of the best. One of our own.' "'Lieutenant J.G., Naval Reserve. You don't need to worry about credibility, Pancho.' "'They sound sapient to me,' Wybera said. "'You know, this is something I've always been half hoping and half afraid would happen.' "'You mean an excuse to intervene in that mess down there?' Greibenfeld asked. Wybera looked blankly at him for a moment. "'No, no, I meant a case of borderline sapience. Something our sacred talk-and-build-a-fire rule won't cover.' "'Just how did this come to our attention, Stephen?' "'Well, it was transmitted to us from contact centre in Mallorysport late Friday night. There seemed to be a number of copies of this tape around. Our agent got hold of one of them and transmitted it to contact centre, and it was relayed on to us with the agent's comments,' Alborg said. "'Contact centre ordered a routine surveillance inside Company House, and a place safe at the residency.' At the time, there seemed no reason to give the thing any beat-to-quarters-and-man-guns treatment, but we got a report on Saturday afternoon, Mallory's port time, that is, that Leonard Kellogg had played off the copy of the tape that Juan Jimenez had made for file, and had alerted Victor Grego immediately. Of course, Grego saw the implications at once. He sent Kellogg and the chief company psychologist, Ernst Mallin, out to Beta Continent, with orders to brand Rainsford and Holloway's claims as a deliberate hoax. Then the company intends to encourage the trapping of fuzzies for their fur, in hopes that the whole species will be exterminated before anybody can get out from terror to check on Rainsford's story. I hadn't heard that last detail before. Well, we can prove it, Elborg assured him. It sounded like a Victor Grego idea. He lit his pipe slowly. Damn it, he didn't want to have to intervene. No Space Navy CO did. Justifying intervention on a colonial planet was too much bother— always a board of inquiry, often a court-martial, and supersession of civil authority was completely against service doctrine. Of course, there were other and more important tenets of service doctrine. The sovereignty of the Terran Federation, for one, and the inviolability of the Federation Constitution, and the rights of extraterrestrials, too. Conrad Greibenfeld, too, seemed to have been thinking about that. If those fuzzies are sapient beings, that whole set-up down there is illegal— company, colonial administration, and all, he said. Zarathustra's a class four planet, and that's all you can make out of it. We won't intervene unless we're forced to. Pancho, I think the decision will be largely up to you. 
Pancho Wybera was horrified. "'Good God, Alex, you can't mean that. Who am I? A nobody. All I have is an ordinary M.D. and a Psych D. Why, the best psychological brains in the Federation. Aren't on Zarathustra, Pancho. They're on Terra, five hundred light-years, six months' ship voyage each way. Intervention, of course, is my responsibility, but the sapient's question is yours. I don't envy you, but I can't relieve you of it. Gerd van Riebeek's suggestion that all three of the visitors sleep aboard the airboat hadn't been treated seriously at all. Gerd himself was accommodated in the spare room of the living hut. Juan Jimenez went with Ben Rainsford to his camp for the night. Ruth Ortheris had the cabin of the boat to herself. Rainsford was on the screen the next morning, while Jack and Gerd and Ruth and the Fuzzies were having breakfast. He and Jimenez had decided to take his air-jeep and work down from the head of Cold Creek, in the belief that there must be more Fuzzies around in the woods. Both Gerd and Ruth decided to spend the morning at the camp and get acquainted with the Fuzzies on hand. The family had had enough breakfast to leave them neutral on the subject of land-prawns, and they were given another of the new toys, a big-coloured ball. They rolled it around in the grass for a while, decided to save it for their evening romp, and took it into the house. Then they began playing aimlessly among some junk in the shed outside the workshop. Once in a while one of them would drift away to look for a prawn, more for sport than food. Ruth and Gerd and Jack were sitting at the breakfast-table on the grass, talking idly, and trying to think of excuses for not washing the dishes. Mamma, Fuzzy, and Baby were poking about in the tall grass. Suddenly Mamma gave a shrill cry and started back for the shed, chasing Baby ahead of her, and slapping him on the bottom with the flat of her chopper-digger to hurry him along. Jack started for the house at a run. Gerd grabbed his camera and jumped up on the table. It was Ruth who saw the cause of the disturbance. "'Jack, look, over there!' she pointed to the edge of the clearing. Two strange fuzzies!' He kept on running, but instead of the rifle he had been going for, he collected his movie-camera, two of the spare chopper-diggers, and some X-T-3. When he emerged again, the two fuzzies had come into the clearing, and stood side by side, looking around. Both were females, and they both carried wooden prawn-killers. "'You have plenty of film?' he asked Gerd. "'Here, Ruth, take this.' He handed her his own camera. "'Keep far enough away from me to get what I'm doing and what they're doing. I'm going to try to trade with them.' He went forward, the steel weapons in his hip-pocket and the X-T-3 in his hand, talking softly and soothingly to the newcomers. When he was as close to them as he could get without stampeding them, he stopped. "'Our gang's coming up behind you,' Gerd told him. "'Regular skirmish line, choppers at high port. Now they've stopped about thirty feet behind you.' He broke off a piece of X-T-3, put it in his mouth, and ate it. Then he broke off two more pieces and held them out. The two fuzzies were tempted, but not to the point of rashness. He threw both pieces within a few feet of them. One darted forward, threw a piece to her companion, and then snatched the other piece and ran back with it. They stood together, nibbling and making soft, delighted noises. His own family seemed to disapprove strenuously of this lavishing of delicacies upon outsiders. However, the two strangers decided that it would be safe to come closer, and soon he had them taking bits of field-ration from his hand. Then he took the two steel chopper-diggers out of his pocket, and managed to convey the idea that he wanted to trade. The two strange fuzzies were incredulously delighted. This was too much for his own tribe. They came up yeeking angrily. The two strange females retreated a few steps, their new weapon ready. 
Everybody seemed to expect a fight, and nobody wanted one. From what he could remember of old Terran history, this was a situation which could develop into serious trouble. Then Coco advanced, dragging his chopper-digger in an obviously pacific manner, and approached the two females, yeeking softly, and touching first one and then the other. Then he laid his weapon down and put his foot on it. The two females began stroking and caressing him. Immediately the crisis evaporated. The others of the family came forward, stuck their weapons in the ground, and began fondling the strangers. Then they all sat in a circle, swaying their bodies rhythmically and making soft noises. Finally Coco and the two females rose, picked up their weapons, and started for the woods. "'Jack, stop them!' Ruth called out. "'They're going away!' "'If they want to go, I have no right to stop them.' When they were almost at the edge of the woods, Coco stopped, drove the point of his weapon into the ground, and came running back to Pappy Jack, throwing his arms around the human knees and yeeking. Jack stooped and stroked him, but didn't try to pick him up. One of the two females pulled his chopper-digger out, and they both came back slowly. At the same time, little Fuzzy, Mamma Fuzzy, Mike and Mitzi came running back. For a while all the Fuzzies embraced one another, yeeking happily. Then they all trooped across the grass and went into the house. "'Get all that, Gerd?' he asked. "'On film, yes. That's the only way I did, though. What happened?' "'You have just made the first film of intertribal social and mating customs, Zarathustra and Fuzzy. "'This is the family's home. They don't want any strange Fuzzies hanging around. "'They were going to run the girls off. "'Then Coco decided he liked their looks, and he decided he'd team up with them. "'That made everything different. "'The family sat down with them to tell them what a fine husband they were getting, "'and to tell Coco good-bye. "'Then Coco remembered that he hadn't told me good-bye, and he came back.' The family decided that two more fuzzies wouldn't be in excess of the carrying capacity of this habitat, seeing what a good provider Pappy Jack is. So now I should imagine they're showing the girls the family treasures. You know, they married into a mighty well-to-do family. The girls were named Goldilocks and Cinderella. When lunch was ready, they were all in the living room with the viewscreen on. After lunch, the whole gang went into the bedroom for a nap on Pappy Jack's bed. He spent the afternoon developing movie film, while Gerd and Ruth wrote up the notes they had made the day before, and collaborated on an account of the adoption. By late afternoon, when they were finished, the Fuzzies came out for a frolic and a prawn-hunt. They all heard the air-car before any of the human people did, and they all ran over and climbed up on the bench beside the kitchen door. It was a constabulary cruise-car. It landed, and a couple of troopers got out, saying that they'd stopped to see the Fuzzies. They wanted to know where the extras had come from, and when Jack told them, they looked at one another. "'Next gang that comes along, call us and keep them entertained until we can get there,' one of them said. "'We want some at the post, for prawns, if nothing else.' "'What's George's attitude?' he asked. "'The other night, when he was here, he seemed half scared of them.' "'Ah, he's got over that,' one of the troopers said. "'He called Ben Rainsford. Ben said they were perfectly safe. "'Hey, Ben says they're not animals, they're people.' He started to tell them about some of the things the Fuzzies did. He was still talking when the Fuzzies heard another air-car and called attention to it. This time it was Ben Rainsford and Juan Jimenez. They piled out as soon as they were off contragravity, dragging cameras after them. "'Jack, there are Fuzzies all over the place up there,' Rainsford began while he was getting out. "'All headed down this way. Regular Volk of Onderung. 
We saw over fifty of them, four families and individuals and pairs. I'm sure we missed ten for every one we saw. "'We'd better get up there with a car tomorrow,' one of the troopers said. "'Ben, just where were you?' "'I'll show you on the map.' Then he saw Goldilocks and Cinderella. "'Hey, where'd you two girls come from? I never saw you around here before.' There was another clearing across the stream, with a log footbridge and a path to the camp. Jack guided the big airboat down onto it, and put his airjeep alongside with the canopy up. There were two men on the forward deck of the boat, Kellogg and another man who would be Ernst Mallon. A third man came out of the control cabin after the boat was off contragravity. Jack didn't like Mallon. He had a tight, secretive face, with arrogance and bigotry showing underneath. The third man was younger. His face didn't show anything much, but his coat showed a bulge under the left arm. After being introduced by Kellogg, Mallon introduced him as Kurt Borsch, his assistant. Mallon had to introduce Borsch again at the camp, not only to Ben Rainsford, but also to Van Riebeek, to Jimenez, and even to Ruth Ortheris, which seemed a little odd. Ruth seemed to think so, too, and Mallon hastened to tell her that Borsch was with personnel giving some kind of tests. That appeared to puzzle her even more. None of the three seemed happy about the presence of the constabulary troopers, either. They were all relieved when the cruise car lifted out. Kellogg became interested in the Fuzzies immediately, squatting to examine them. He said something to Mallon, who compressed his lips and shook his head, saying, "'We simply cannot assume sapience until we find something in their behaviour which cannot be explained under any other hypothesis. We should be much safer to assume non-sapience, and proceed to test that assumption.' That seemed to establish the keynote. Kellogg straightened, and he and Mallon started one of those, "'Of course I agree, Doctor, but don't you find on the other hand that you must agree?' sort of arguments, about the difference between scientific evidence and scientific proof. Jimenez got into it to the extent of agreeing with everything Kellogg said, and differing politely with everything Mallon said that he thought Kellogg would differ with. Borsch said nothing. He just stood and looked at the Fuzzies with ill-concealed hostility. Gerd and Ruth decided to help getting dinner. They ate outside on the picnic-table, with the Fuzzies watching them interestedly. Kellogg and Mallon carefully avoided discussing them. It wasn't until after dusk, when the Fuzzies brought their ball inside and everybody was in the living-room, that Kellogg, adopting a presiding officer manner, got the conversation onto the subject. For some time, without giving anyone else an opportunity to say anything, he gushed about what an important discovery the Fuzzies were. The Fuzzies themselves ignored him, and began dismantling the stick-and-ball construction. For a while Goldilocks and Cinderella watched interestedly, and then they began assisting. "'Unfortunately,' Kellogg continued, "'so much of our data is in the form of uncorroborated statements by Mr. Holloway. Now please don't misunderstand me. I don't myself doubt for a moment anything Mr. Holloway said on that tape.' but you must realise that professional scientists are most reluctant to accept the unsubstantiated reports of what, if you'll pardon me, they think of as non-qualified observers. "'Oh, rubbish, Leonard!' Rainsford broke in impatiently. "'I'm a professional scientist of a good many more years standing than you, and I accept Jack Holloway's statements. A frontiers man like Jack is a very careful and exact observer. People who aren't don't live long on frontier planets.' "'Now, please don't misunderstand me,' Kellogg reiterated. "'I don't doubt Mr. Holloway's statements. I was just thinking of how they would be received on terror.' "'I shouldn't worry about that, Leonard. The Institute accepts my reports, and I'm vouching for Jack's reliability. 
I can substantiate most of what he told me from personal observation. Yes, and there's more than just verbal statements, Gerd van Riebeek chimed in. A camera is not a non-qualified observer. We have quite a bit of film of the fuzzies. Oh, yes, there was some mention of movies, Mallon said. You don't have any of them developed yet, do you? Quite a lot. Everything except what was taken out in the woods this afternoon. We can run them off right now. He pulled down the screen in front of the gun-rack, got the film, and loaded his projector. The Fuzzies, who'd begun on a new stick-and-ball construction, were irritated when the lights went out, then wildly excited when Little Fuzzy, digging a toilet-pit with the wood-chisel, appeared. Little Fuzzy in particular was excited about that. If he didn't recognise himself, he recognised the chisel. Then there were pictures of Little Fuzzy killing and eating land-prawns, Little Fuzzy taking the nut off the bolt and putting it on again, and pictures of the others, after they'd come in, hunting and at play. Finally, there was the film of the adoption of Goldilocks and Cinderella. "'What Juan and I got this afternoon up in the woods isn't so good, I'm afraid,' Rainsford said when the show was over and the lights were on again. "'Mostly it's rear views disappearing into the brush. It was very hard to get close to them in the jeep. Their hearing is remarkably acute. But I'm sure the pictures we took this afternoon will show the things they were carrying.' wooden prawn-killers like the two that were traded from the new ones in that last film. Mallon and Kellogg looked at one another in what seemed oddly like consternation. "'You didn't tell us there were more of them around,' Mallon said, as though it were an accusation of duplicity. He turned to Kellogg. "'This alters the situation.' "'Yes, indeed, Ernst,' Kellogg burbled delightedly. "'This is a wonderful opportunity, Mr. Holloway. I understand that all this country up here is your property by land-grant purchase.' "'That's right, isn't it? "'Well, would you allow us to camp on that clearing across the run where our boat is now? "'We'd get prefab huts, Red Hill's the nearest town, isn't it, "'and have a company construction gang set them up for us, "'and we won't be any bother at all to you. "'We'd only intended staying overnight on our boat "'and returning to Mallory's port in the morning, "'but with all these fuzzies swarming around in the woods "'we can't think of leaving now. "'You don't have any objection, do you?' "'He had lots of objections.' The whole business was rapidly developing into an acute pain in the neck for him. But if he didn't let Kellogg camp across the run, the three of them would move seventy or eighty miles in any direction and be off his land. He knew what they'd do then. They'd live-trap or sleep-gas fuzzies, they'd put them in cages and torment them with maze and electric shock experiments, and kill a few for dissection, or maybe not bother killing them first. On his own land, if they did anything like that, he could do something about it. Not at all. I'll have to remind you again, though, that you're to treat these little people with consideration. "'Oh, we won't do anything to your fuzzies,' Mallon said. "'You won't hurt any fuzzies, not more than once, anyhow.' The next morning, during breakfast, Kellogg and Kurt Borsch put on an appearance, Borsch wearing old clothes and field boots and carrying his pistol on his belt. They had a list of things they thought they would need for their camp. Neither of them seemed to have more than the foggiest notion of camp requirements. Jack made some suggestions, which they accepted. There was a lot of scientific equipment on the list, including an X-ray machine. He promptly ran a pencil line through that. "'We don't know what these fuzzies' level of radiation tolerance is. We're not going to find out by overdosing one of my fuzzies.' Somewhat to his surprise, neither of them gave him any argument. Gerd and Ruth and Kellogg borrowed his air-jeep and started north. He and Borsch went across the run to make measurements after Rainsford and Jimenez arrived and picked up Mallon. Borsch took off soon after with the boat for Red Hill. 
Left alone, he loafed around the camp and developed the rest of the movie film, making three copies of everything. Toward noon, Borsch brought the boat back, followed by a couple of scow-like farm boats. In a few hours, the company construction men from Red Hill had the new camp set up. Among other things, they brought two more air jeeps. The two jeeps returned late in the afternoon, everybody excited. Between them, the parties had seen almost a hundred fuzzies, and had found three camps, two among rocks and one in a hollow pool-ball tree. All three had been spotted by belts of filled-in toilet pits around them. Two had been abandoned, and the third was still occupied. Kellogg insisted on playing host to Jack and Rainsford for dinner at the camp across the run. The meal, because everything had been brought ready-cooked and only needed warming, was excellent. Returning to his own camp with Rainsford, Jack found the Fuzzies finished with their evening meal and in the living-room, starting a new construction—he could think of no other name for it—with the molecule model balls and sticks. Goldilocks left the others and came over to him with a couple of balls fastened together, holding them up with one hand while she pulled his trouser-leg with the other. "'Yes, I see. It's very beautiful,' he told her. She tugged harder and pointed at the thing the others were making. Finally he understood. "'She wants me to work on it, too,' he said. "'Ben, you know where the coffee is. Fix us apart. I'm going to be busy here.' He sat down on the floor, and was putting sticks and balls together when Ben brought in the coffee. This was more fun than he'd had in a couple of days. He said so while Ben was distributing XT3 to the Fuzzies. "'Yes, I ought to let you kick me all around the camp for getting this started,' Rainsford said, pouring the coffee. "'I could make some excuses, but they'd all sound like I didn't know it was loaded.' "'Hell, I didn't know it was loaded, either.' He rose and took his coffee-cup, blowing on it to cool it. "'What do you think Kellogg's up to, anyhow? That whole act he's been putting on since he came here is phony as a nine-sol bill.' "'What I told you evening before last,' Rainsford said. "'He doesn't want non-company people making discoveries on Zarathustra. You notice how hard he and Mallon are straining to talk me out of sending a report back to Terra before he can investigate the Fuzzies.' He wants to get his own report in first. Oh, the hell with him! You know what I'm going to do? I'm going home, and I'm going to sit up all night getting a report into shape. Tomorrow morning I'm going to give it to George Lunt, and let him send it to Mallorysport in the constabulary mail-pouch. It'll be on a ship for terror before any of this gang knows it's been sent. Do you have any copies of those movies you can spare? About a mile and a half. I made copies of everything, even the stuff the others took. "'Good. We'll send that, too. Let Kellogg read about it in the papers a year from now.' He thought for a moment, then said, "'Gerd and Ruth and Juan are bunking at the other camp now. Suppose I move in here with you tomorrow. I assume you don't want to leave the Fuzzies alone while that gang's here. I can help you keep an eye on them.' "'But, Ben, you don't want to drop whatever else you're doing.' "'What I'm doing now is learning to be a fuzziologist, and this is the only place I can do it.' I'll see you tomorrow, after I stop at the constabulary post. The people across the run—Kellogg, Mallon, and Borsch, and Van Riebeek, Jimenez, and Ruth Ortheris—were still up when Rainsford went out to his air-jeep. After watching him lift out, Jack went back into the house, played with his family in the living-room for a while, and went to bed. The next morning he watched Kellogg, Ruth, and Jimenez leave in one jeep, and shortly after Mallon and Van Riebeek in the other— Kellogg didn't seem to be willing to let the three who had come to the camp first wander around unchaperoned. He wondered about that. Ben Rainsford's air-jeep came over the mountains from the south in the late morning and settled onto the grass. 
Jack helped him inside with his luggage, and then they sat down under the big featherleaf trees to smoke their pipes and watch the fuzzies playing in the grass. Occasionally they saw Kurt Borsch pottering around outside the other camp. "'I sent the report off,' Rainsford said, then looked at his watch. "'It ought to be on the mailboat for Mallorysport by now. This time tomorrow it'll be in hyperspace for terror. We won't say anything about it, just sit back and watch Len Kellogg and Ernst Mallon working up a sweat trying to talk us out of sending it. He chuckled. I made a definite claim of sapience. By the time I got the report in shape to tape off, I couldn't see any other alternative. Damned if I can. You hear that, kids? He asked Mike and Mitzi, who had come over in the hope that there might be goodies for them. Uncle Ben says you're sapient. Eek! They want to know if it's good to eat. What'll happen now? Nothing for about a year. Six months from now, when the ship gets in, the Institute will release it to the press, and then they'll send an investigation team here. So will any of the other universities or scientific institutes that may be interested. I suppose the government will send somebody, too. After all, sub-civilized natives on colonized planets are wards of the Terran Federation. He didn't know that he liked that. The less he had to do with the government, the better, and his fuzzies were wards of Pappy Jack Holloway. He said as much. Rainsford picked up Mitzi and stroked her. "'Nice fur,' he said. "'Fur like that would bring good prices. It will, if we don't get these people recognized as sapient beings.' He looked across the run at the new camp and wondered. Maybe Leonard Kellogg saw that, too, and saw profits for the company in fuzzy fur." The airjeeps returned in the middle of the afternoon, first Mallon's and then Kellogg's. Everybody went inside. An hour later, a constabulary car landed in front of the Kellogg camp. George Lunt and Ahmed Kadra got out. Kellogg came outside, spoke with them, and then took them into the main living hut. Half an hour later, the lieutenant and the trooper emerged, lifted their car across the run, and set it down on the lawn. The Fuzzies ran to meet them, possibly expecting more whistles, and followed them into the living-room. Lunt and Kadra took off their berets, but made no move to unbuckle their gun-belts. "'We got your package off all right, Ben,' Lunt said. He sat down and took Goldilocks on his lap. Immediately Cinderella jumped up also. "'Jack, what the hell's that gang over there up to, anyhow?' "'You got that, too?' "'You can smell it on them for a mile against the wind.' In the first place, that Borsch—I wish I could get his prints, I'll bet we have them on file—and the whole gang's trying to hide something, and what they're trying to hide is something they're scared of, like a body in a closet. While we were over there, Kellogg did all the talking. Anybody else who tried to say anything got shut up fast. Kellogg doesn't like you, Jack, and he doesn't like Ben, and he doesn't like the Fuzzies. Most of all, he doesn't like the Fuzzies." "'Well, I told you what I thought this morning,' Rainsford said. "'They don't want outsiders discovering things on this planet. It wouldn't make them look good to the Home Office on Terra. Remember, it was some non-company people who discovered the first sunstones back in forty-eight. George Lunt looked thoughtful. On him it was a scowl. "'I don't think that's it, Ben. When we were talking to him, he admitted very freely that you and Jack discovered the Fuzzies.' The way he talked, he didn't seem to think they were worth discovering at all. And he asked a lot of funny questions about you, Jack, the kind of questions I'd ask if I was checking up on somebody's mental competence. The scowl became one of anger now. By God, I wish I had an excuse to question him, with a veridicator. Kellogg didn't want the Fuzzies to be sapient beings. If they weren't, they'd be fur-bearing animals. 
Jack thought of some overfed society dowager on terror or balder, wearing the skins of little Fuzzy and Mamma Fuzzy and Mike and Mitzi and Coco and Cinderella and Goldilocks wrapped around her adipus carcass. It made him feel sick. End of chapter 6